Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the NCG Golf Podcast, once again in association with TaylorMade. And it has been a huge week again in golf's news cycle. Tiger came back, then he maybe left Nike. John Rahm said nothing again about his rumoured move to live. Just another week in modern day golf. And then earlier this week, we had this huge news from the RNA and the USGA who finally announced their intentions regarding the much awaited, rumoured and debated golf ball rollback. So to add that debate today, I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Steve Carroll. Hi, Tom. Good to be here. Uh, and two very special guests. So I'd like to introduce them both, give them their due uh, build-up. I've got Lou Stagner, uh, who many of you will know from Golf Twitter, uh, performance coach and assistant golf coach at Princeton. Lou is a self-described golf nut and data nerd. Nerd? Nerd? Has become a powerful thought leader in the golf data space, combining his lifelong passion for the game with his background as a business intelligence and analytics executive. Through his very popular Twitter feed, at Lou Stagner and co-hosting the Hack It Out Golf Podcast, Lou's become a highly respected among tour players, coaches, elite amateurs, golf equipment manufacturers, media members, and recreational players alike. Hello, Lou. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. And, and Tom, thank you. When you stumbled over data nerd there, I thought you were going to say data turd for a second. So thank you for not slipping in that direction. <laughs> could have got much worse, couldn't it? It could uh, have, yes. Yeah. Uh, and you do spend a lot of time in Mark Crossfield as well. So you're obviously a very patient man. Uh, yes, that is one word to describe working with Mr. Crossfield. Yeah, we do a podcast together and we've become very good friends over the last uh, three or four years. Yeah, I love love it, actually. The uh, the short stats one you do particularly, absolutely brilliant. Listen, I appreciate um, it. Thank you. And we are also joined by uh, James, who co-founded Urban Golf, the UK's first and best indoor golf venue. He's also the founder of disrupted clothing brand Sounder, and as a player, teacher, club maker, and entrepreneur, he spent his entire career fighting for a version of the game that's more accessible, more rewarding, and more fun. Welcome, James. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Those are uh, those are your own words, by the way. They're John Davies' words. The John Davies' words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, who's who's the, the person that really runs Sounder? Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's a fair synopsis. I think that the, uh, in terms of sort of relevance to this, I've I've spent uh, a lot of time working on uh, technology, ball tracking technology in particular. Um, we started off uh, developing our own tech for Urban Golf, and then ended up joining forces with another technology company. Um, and I've also spent years and years uh, more as a passion than anything else, but as a club maker and club builder. But the the work we did on technology for the simulators has also given me a different view of the club making space and the technology, the way technology can be used for that. So uh, I'm a fanatical uh, golfer. And I think, you know, one of the other things that might have relevance to this is I sort of, I haven't really climbed the greasy pole of the golf industry. Uh, I was 24 when we started this business. Um, and I've been able to be in the golf business without having probably the same allegiances to most of the people in the golf business. So I do uh, look at things probably a slightly different way. Unencumbered is the word you're looking for. That's a good word, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, thank you both very much for giving up your time to come and um, discuss this with us. Uh, really excited about the debate. I think you're both going to have lots and lots to add. Um, we'll get into exactly what's been announced shortly, but there's, there's absolutely no doubt it's been a, it's a big change. We have over the years seen rule changes in golf relating to equipment and um, the move to a unified ball in the late 70s, the banning of square grooves in irons in 2008 kind of stand out as, as step changes in equipment. Um, but there is something brazen, I think, about limiting of distance that is triggering for people. After all, I don't think anyone sort of would put their hand up to be shorter. Um, and in the build-up to and in the immediate aftermath of the announcement, we've seen outcries from all sides. Too much, some say, leave the game alone, not enough, say others. The debate online has seen the usual polemists sort of blindly arguing one side or another. And just a quick glance down our Facebook page kind of gives you a bit of a flavour of, um, of how short shrift some of that debate is. No need for change for the handicapped golfers of 10 or more, writes someone. Absolutely ludicrous for amateurs. Leave the amateur players alone. It'll only affect the pros. Go back to wooden drivers. It's a storm in a teacup. You get the idea. So online sense and balance is hard to come by. So I think on a podcast, we've obviously got the luxury of unlimited time. Um, and we wanted to bring together you two as kind of respective individuals. I'm not saying that you're on opposite sides of the argument, but you are, I think, from different corners of the industry. You have differing views, which I think um, you will put across in a balanced way. And I think it was we want a discussion, I think, really about what we think the right way forward for the game is and have a bit of a deep dive into the many and varied arguments that you only kind of get a snapshot from online. Um, and before we bring bring James and Lou into the debate, Steve, I thought it'd be good if we could kind of kick off by giving us some context about what exactly has been announced. And do try and keep it top line, please. <laughs> well, how can I follow your poetic um, introduction to that debate, Tom? I'm going to try and keep it very simple because it does get technical. There are maths involved, there's launch angles involved, there's RPM involved and things like that. But um, to keep it to keep it very, very simple and hopefully brief, um, back in 2020, the RNA and the USGLA released what they called their Distance Insights Report, which effectively concluded that in their view, longer hitting distances were hurting the game. Um, we expected something quite quickly from that, but COVID got in the way. Um, and after a period of consultation in March 2023, uh, the two governing bodies came forward with a proposed model local rule that would effectively bifurcate the game. So the idea was that um, tournament professionals, male tournament professionals and elite amateurs would essentially play a modified competition ball that would fly shorter and recreational players and, and the women's game would be left alone. Um, the model local rule was not universally well received. I think that's fair to say. Um, a number of organisations um, said that they weren't going to uh, support it in its current form. Uh, the most uh, prominent of those, obviously, was the PGA Tour, but there were others involved as well, various PGAs. Even England Golf got involved and said how they thought it would be confusing for the amateur game, which left the RNA and the USGA in a really, in a really, really difficult spot in a quandary because if you're effectively having Having a bifurcated game anyway between professionals and amateurs, what happens when the organisations you're hoping will support your model local rule are threatening to bifurcate themselves? It's a, it turns out it to be a bit of a mess. So the RNA and the USG have thought again, and on Wednesday this week, they announced their new proposals. And it involves um, updating testing conditions for golf balls. So I'm not, I'm not going to get into the real mathematics of this and the, the launch angles and things like that. But basically, robots test golf balls at certain 
swing speeds. Um, there is something called the overall distance standard, which regulates how far this ball can go. And the RNA essentially are going to up the swing speed that the robot swings at, keep the um, keep the distance standard the same, and consequently, lots of golf balls which are currently conforming will not conform anymore. Now, they've projected... Um, what the new ball conditions around the new testing conditions will mean for the various uh, sets of the game. And they're, um, they're forecasting that the longest hitters, um, your Rory McIlroy's, for example, will probably lose between 13 and 15 yards in drive distance. Your average professional tour and elite player can expect to see a reduction of around 9 to 11 yards, 5 to 7 yard reduction for an average LET or LPGA player. And for the recreational players, obviously, who, who we talk to most of the time, they're saying that most recreational players will see a minimal distance impact of around five yards or less. Now, that was done, I think, using an average swing speed of 93 miles per hour for men and 72 miles an hour for female golfers. So you could argue that some swing faster than others, and they might see associated differences as well. These changes are going to come into effect in the pro game in 2028, and the new ball, the old ball, sorry, will still be allowed to be used by club golfers, recreational players, until January 2030. Some balls, I am trying to find out which, I have asked the RNA, some balls will continue to conform um, because they'll meet the distance standard anyway. So we're trying to find out what they are. If I had to speculate, Tom, I'd say they were probably softer feel. Um, possibly the kind of ball that a club golfer might expect to play anyway if they weren't going for that hugely premium market. But I mean, these are massive changes. Um, it fundamentally, the RNA and the USGA say they're doing it to help the achieve a sustainable future for golf. They're saying that the golf goal goes too far. And not only does that impact on the top level, it also has questions for environmental sustainability, um, course lengths and so on. But Again, uh, we speculated whether this was going to happen last week. Um, and when Martin Slumbers came out and said the phrase, we bifurcate, we do nothing, or we change the game for everyone, and we're not going to do nothing, um, a universal ball back, rollback was really on the cards, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's obviously where we've got to. It's a great effort at trying to summarise something so complicated in a couple of minutes. Um, I think... like. What, what I'd like to do to start off with is try and get a kind of a, a bit of a feel for where you guys have have come from on this debate. So where you were when the kind of what your position was when it looked like we were going to bifurcate, what your position is now, having kind of heard the announcement. Um, Lou, you've obviously been pretty vocal about it online. Um, you have backed up a lot of your opinions with a lot of statistics around it. Um, I think it'd be good if you could kind of go first. James was late, after all, in terms of um, uh, your kind of opening, opening remarks, if we could just get a bit of a feel for what your kind of instinctive reaction was yesterday at this announcement. Uh, yeah, my opening remark will be very brief. Um, I've been against rollback in any form, uh, right from when they first started discussing this. And I think one of the points that, that gets lost is when they initially asked for feedback, um, the comment period came back with, we're not interested in rollback. Um, so I think it's important to, to note that. But um, I don't think there is any issue. Um, and rolling it back at the professional level and the amateur level uh, is a mistake, in my opinion. Um, and is that, is, that, is that a view that you've held throughout 
So this like, you haven't sort of wavered yeah, from that. Yeah. From from the beginning, uh, from when I first started uh, being active on Twitter back in the end of 2018, soon after when when all of this became pretty widely discussed, back when I had, you know, 300 followers on Twitter, um, I was very vocal against this. Um, and I just want to point out too that when you reference the data that I've been using. 99.99% of the time, the data that I'm using is directly from the USGA and RNA Data Insights Report, which there's a summary report, a summary document, which many people are familiar with, but there are 56 sub-reports that are the details that went into, they served as the basis of the summary documents. And so you can go through there, and that's what I've done, um, and I share a lot of the information from there on this topic. So what you're sort of what you're saying is that using the same information the RNA and the USJ have, you're reaching a different conclusion. Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it, it's it, it's very interesting to to hear some of the things that they say, and then you can go into their own data, and their own data shows otherwise. You know, recently, Mike Wan, uh, who is the CEO of the USGA. Um, he was talking on Michael Breed's show earlier this year, and he said he's, he's worried and concerned that uh, another golf course is going to need to buy 17 acres to expand um, and that all 30,000 plus golf courses around the world, they need to start preparing to invest money into their course to prepare for elite level competition in length. And when you look through you know, that particular report, uh, the USGA and RNA studied uh, how golf courses have changed because of distance. Uh, and golf courses' existing facilities are not changing. Uh, They're not changing. As, as a matter of fact, fairway area, green area has reduced. It's getting smaller. Uh, and golf courses are not adding land. Uh, and the random sample that they took of golf courses, when they removed the nine golf courses that purchased land to add a driving range, because they didn't have one, the rest of the sample, they decreased in footprint by an average of 1.2 acres. And so for, for Juan to be out there saying golf courses are, are adding, um, adding acreage, is completely false. They, 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 they note in there that golf courses are adding significant distance to their facilities without expanding their footprint, without expanding the areas of fairway, without expanding how large the greens are. And all of those things are major contributors on the environmental side. Uh, and, and so, you know, I hear a lot of the things that are said, and then I can go into the report and I can find data that just completely destroys what they're saying. And, and I find that, um, you know, puzzling uh, that they're not following the, their own data. Um, well, that's really interesting. There's obviously an awful lot to pick up on there um, about the the changing nature of golf course property, I guess. James, is there anything like for you that you that you that strikes you about what Lou's just said, and what what is the kind of journey you've been on with with rollback as a concept? Um, yeah, where to start? I mean, I I would be interested to understand, um, you know, from a different perspective, uh, why somebody would would why Lou, you think that that there isn't an issue, and if I think that the you know, when, when we talk about, I mean, to, to start off this conversation talking about the environmental part, and I know that the RNA and the USGA have put that front and centre, but I think 
the first thing that we need to do is kind of acknowledge the landscape that we are in, which is that we've got two governing bodies who have to take a long-term view over the game. Um, I think it would be an interesting debate to be had um, as to whether we feel like, you know, as golfers, you know, as everyday golfers, and we all can see at the moment how, uh, you know, the stuff that's going on in the pro game kind of doesn't really acknowledge the fan and and, it's, and it shows that a lot of what's going on at the top of the game is all about money. Um, and so, you know, do we think that equipment brands, uh, pros are the best people to regulate the game of golf, to make the rules that everybody else has to play under? Or do we think there should be a governing body who, you know, is able to take a slightly longer term view from the perspective of the everyday golfer? And what we've really seen here in terms of the reaction is a pretty, uh, a pretty a good go at undermining those governing bodies by big equipment brands um, and the pros who are obviously their mouthpiece and will obviously sort of toe the line. And um, one of the things that I think is a bit disappointing is obviously we come back to this thing, this distance, distance, distance. And when they did the first distance report, the RNA made a bit of a transition, which is that they said that they really wanted to reintroduce certain skills back into the game, which they feel had gone away over the last 15 to 20 years. And it's important to acknowledge what that is. And essentially what it is, is Pro V1 comes along in 2000 or whenever it was. Um, and what we got at that point was a lower spinning, slightly harder golf ball. And with a lower spinning ball, players can hit it a lot harder because they're not worried about it flying up in the air like the old Bellatas. And then what happens is, you have a generation of players that grow up with big-headed drivers hitting it as hard as they can. They don't have to work as hard to control the ball. And we lose a little bit of that skill base that there used to be in getting the ball around the golf course. And what we see today is, in my opinion, not quite as good. You don't really need to have those skills anymore. Some of the creativity has fallen away. And I think that that's a real shame. And um, for me, that skill aspect in terms of what type of game do we want to see is re is a really important thing and if you you know if you take the sort of constant progress story that gets told by the equipment companies of every driver goes a bit further each year you know we kind of know that's not really true equally we know that i've done some testing uh with original pro v1 versus today's pro v1 there's not a huge difference between those those balls so the point i'm trying to make is Something happens, which is a change. So it's a lower spinning ball. And then over the next 20 years, that changes the way that, that players play the game. And here we are today. And I think the problem is, is that the governing bodies, in fact, have always been a bit behind the eight ball on this. You know, if you look at when they changed anchored putters, uh, there was a generation of players that had never used anything else. So it was a really difficult uh, thing for them to do. And they're always operating with the kind of the core action gun to their head so we know that uh you know manufacturers will probably take action if if the rna and the usga say anything which undermines some of the marketing messages that they've put out there so it's really tricky and i think that they end up using language which probably isn't the language they would use if they could if they could just tell it like it is yeah i think yeah i think that you you, you both i think perhaps quite succinctly summarized uh both 
either side of the argument. And I think James, you've obviously focused particularly on the kind of the changing skill set amongst the professional game. Um, you also touched on this kind of undermining of uh, the game's governing bodies. That's kind of the world we live in now, isn't it? That what what was once viewed as kind of um, uh, what's the word? Where we just wouldn't dare question the kind of chastity of the um, of the RNA or the USGA. That is now questioned, and we are, we kind of we we seem to be living through a time where it's you are allowed to kind of question um, the people who govern you for one reason or another. And I think that is a whole sort of interesting side of this debate that has come out online with people saying, "Well, the RNA have got this vested interest, or the USGA have got this other vested interest." I think if you put that to one side and say, actually, the games governing bodies are the they're all we've got really in terms of people who are trying to protect the game in the long term and you accept that that is a universal truth i'm not saying it is but if for the purpose of this debate if you accept that then there's some stuff in what you just said which i think i would be interested to see what lou has got to say about it so the kind of the direction of, and if we deal just with the professional game for the time being it's kind of unarguable that the the direction of travel in the professional game is that the average hitting distance of players on tour is getting longer over a period of time. Um, and I was sitting watching Tiger this weekend um, and he said himself that Tiger aged 37 or whatever he is now, 38, 48 rather, um, is longer than peak in his pomp 2000 Tiger. And that version of Tiger was astronomically further hit it further than anybody else at that time he, he revolutionized the game so if he is now able with his rebuilt body to be hitting it further than himself in his pomp that has to be down to equipment and i think what you've therefore seen is you've seen this sort of removal of driving the ball well and far being a skill because people have just moved together more people are able to hit it further um, and over the years of the best players in the world have often been the longest. Hagen, Woods, Nicholas, they've all been the longest because they've had a set of skills that have been inaccessible to many others. So when when you say there's no problem, Lou, at the, at the, in the professional game, do you not see that, that 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 sort of ability to drive the ball really well is becoming less sacrosanct? Well, um, I, I'm, I have a number of things I want to go through. First, I want to—I don't want to devolve us into a discussion on anchored putters. Uh, but uh, when they made the decision on anchored putting, uh, Rule 14.1b, um, less than four percent of players used anchored putters. So it was very small number of players that used it. And when they came out, their justification, their underlying rationale, I'm going to read it right from the document. One concern raised in some comments opposing the proposed rule was the absence of statistical evidence that anchored putting is a superior method of stroke. Their premise was that without such scientific evidence, the governing bodies cannot conclude that this technique of making a stroke may alter golf's essential challenge and prov provide an advantage to the player using it and therefore cannot hope to benefit the game by eliminating the anchored technique. Although, although we understand that people often look for statistical data when engaged in a factual and policy debate, we believe that these assertions are misplaced in the present context and reflect a misunderstanding of the rationale for the rule. Um, they didn't make a, the change because anchored putting was easier. Um, and they even said here in their rationale behind it that we didn't – anchored putting isn't easier. We're not even going to study it. And so they made the change based on their opinion and preference of how golf should be. Um, they did the same thing with the 48-inch driver. And we had John Spitzer, who is the technical director of equipment for the USGA – 
And they made a knee-jerk reaction to Bryson saying he was going to use a 48-inch driver. And they limited that. And they, they did no testing around a move from 46 to 48 and how much more challenging it is to hit a 48-inch driver, what the actual benefits are. They didn't put any effort into that. They just said, we don't really like that. And, and making a decision on something like anchored putting – um, because they, they don't like the way it looks. They don't think it's part of the spirit of the game. Why not ban? There's a college player right now who's a phenomenal player. He plays cross-handed. Why not ban cross-handed? Why not ban you're not allowed to lift your left heel off the ground? Uh, you're not allowed to use a certain kind of grip. Um, and, and so banning the anchored putter make, made no sense, and there's no rationale that went into it. Um, as far as players you know, getting longer, uh, since 2004, I believe is when the equipment standards went in place. Um, since 2004, equipment has been regulated. And all of the changes that we see since then are because of the player. Uh, that's not my words. Those are the words of John Spitzer, who, again, is the technical director. He's a, the gentleman in charge of equipment at the USGA. And he said on my podcast, you can go on my Twitter feed and watch the video of him saying it, that pretty much all gains since 2004 are because of the player himself. Um, so there's a lot that has changed over the last 20 years. And, and data has, has been you know, part of that journey. We understand the importance of distance a lot more than we used to. Distance has always been important, but there's a better understanding of it. And, and a great example of that uh, is you can see how people have changed playing hole 10 at Riviera. Uh, and now nearly the entire field goes for it. And back in 2010, 2011, um, which they weren't hitting it much shorter than they are now, um, a, a huge number of people laid up. So they understand the importance of distance and hitting it farther. Um, tour players have gotten younger over the last 20 years. So there's been a downtick in age. Younger players hit it farther. The advent of launch monitor technology has allowed people to optimize. And so equipment is capped. And the thing that is, is Dr. Sasha McKenzie, if you know who he is, he is without a doubt probably the leading biomechanist in, in golf. And he brought up a really interesting point, and, and that's around uh, at the tour level, offline dispersion is essentially a function of how far you hit the ball. And right now we're sort of capped, um, and, and no one's really looked at that, and that was his point. We're, we're, we're sort of capped, and which is why when you, when you look at the data, if you pull up pjtour.com right now, go to the stats page, click on driving and scroll down and click on club head speed and look at all the players with the fastest club head speed. And you're going to go through, and I'm not picking on any of them. They're all world-class players, but you're going to see a lot of players in that top 20 and go, Oh yeah, not really a, you know, not a top 50 player, not a top, not a top 100 player, not a, there's a lot of really fast swinging players in there. And so it's very challenging to swing mid one twenties and keep the ball on the planet. Um, on the golf courses that they're playing. And so what Sasho is saying, and I think he's absolutely spot on, is that when they roll this back, what is going to happen is right now, the average swing speed on tour is 115 miles per hour. 
And when they roll this back, there is a lot of players that have more in the tank. And so let's say they do nothing and they continue to play the game exactly the same way. They're going to be shorter. Their dispersion will tighten up a little bit because ultimately it's just a cone that they're hitting into. And when you shorten that cone, dispersion comes in a bit. Now they're going to be able to swing faster. And the ball is going to go farther and they're going to get back to where they were. So you're going to very quickly see the average swing speed on tour go from 115 up into the upper teens to around 120, which will essentially negate this rollback. So, And they haven't put any effort into understanding and studying that. And right now we're only talking about tour pros. We're talking about a few thousand players on the planet mm -hmm. that play at that level across all these different tours. The average male amateur hits at about 220 yards. The average female amateur about 160 yards. Like they are not obsoleting golf courses. And I don't even really know what that word means to tell you the truth. But those are, that's Mike Wan's words directly that amateurs are not obsoleting golf courses anytime soon. And I don't, none of this makes any sense to me um, when you put a, a rational view on what is, you know, what the, what the landscape actually looks like. Yeah. Some of, I mean, a lot of that makes total sense. And uh, I've read the McKenzie stuff and, and his views on the, that the fastest players will just get faster because they can do. I think mean, we've all seen McElroy try and get 200 mile an hour ball, ball speed and he's, he's playing it. I guess he plays at like 120, does he? But can swing it at 130, I would think. So he's like backed off the whole time pretty much. So I do understand that point of view. Um, I also massively understand the point of view that it's not just hardware and ball that's making the ball go, that's mean, meaning tour pros are hitting it farther. I totally, I totally buy into, they've had it proven to them that that's the most efficient way to play golf through data, completely on board with that. Um, and I'm also completely on board with Trackman being a huge, or Trackman and similar things being a huge step forward in the way the game's taught. So we're now dealing with um, very, very efficient golf swings and people are not trying to kind of swing it to a, um, a, an ideal view of what a golf swing should look like. I think all of that is like totally correct. I guess sort of similar to what you're saying about how you've had the same information as the USJ and the RNA, you've reached different conclusions. The conclusion that some people would come to is that because of all of those things, because golfers in the uh, pro golfers in the main are fitter, stronger, they've got access to better data, they've got access to launch monitors, that the only thing you can really do to mean that the, the progress in terms of distance is arrested is do something to hardware and i would be interested in what your direct response is to the tiger woods example because he has he's kind of lived through three generations of golfer probably and he is longer now than he was in 2000 he said himself and he had access to all of the things we just described i.e gyms and data and um launch monitor technology then so he, he's not been afforded any of those additional advantages he's always had those and he's now longer and he's probably right. I have back. no idea. Yeah, I have no idea. It 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 doesn't matter what Tiger um just because Tiger's pro rollback that that has no weight. Yes, he's the greatest golfer that's ever played, but that's just an argument to, you know, a, a celebrity because a celebrity thinks this or a really good good golfer thinks this, it doesn't make it the right choice. And uh, so, and I have no idea what his swing speed looked like in the mid 90s. I have no clue. Uh, do you know what his swing speed was in the mid 90s? I do, yeah. What was it? 
Tiger was at ball speed. Um, balls, Tiger's ball speed when he when he first cut mid to late nineties would have been about one seventy two. Um, but he, where's that you know, from? Quite impro- just. I've been in the game a long time, and I've always watched this. No, but stuff. where's it? Where's the source of that? From the PGA Tour stats from that time. They don't have they don't have ball speed. Well, so when swing, he first came on tour, data. okay. So when he yeah. when he first came on tour, but if if I just can I just refer back to some of the stuff from a moment ago before it before it sort of pops out of my head. I mean, I think that the 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 preference thing is interesting, and also the and that's a really interesting thing to dive into. Um, and I think that my point about anchored putters was much more about not whether it was right or wrong to bang an- anchored putters. It was much more about it took too long. And therefore, it was a big change, and there were it was unfair on quite a lot of players. Um, the, the the thing with with preference, and the thing with a lot of the things that you listed there, Lou, is that the um, a lot of the differences in terms of players getting stronger and the style of play. So them going for uh, ten at Riviera more often or all of the time. That is that's a style of play that has emerged uh, recently, and I think that. It's okay on a podcast like this as golfers, as people that are passionate about the game to talk about um, the nuance of the game in terms of how the game is played. So that is very much before you get into statistics. You know, it's a style of play thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that the decision has to be made based on preference. And I think the elephant in the room here is that um, and when you you know, the, the the talk of how this affects average golfers and things um, is that what's happened in golf at the moment is that all new things are just regarded as progress. Um, and I think if we sat here and asked ourselves right now, uh, and I'm not saying anything against Bryson DeChambeau, but Bryson DeChambeau as a style of player, as a type of player, um, is that is that the version of the game that we, that we think we'd like to see in you know, in 10 years time, because, you know, I follow a lot of things quite closely and there's people going into colleges at the moment who are basically, you know, without a lot of college coaches are taking track man data as opposed to seeing the player actually play the game. Uh, You know, those numbers, those sort of numbers that somebody produces on a launch monitor are being put front and center. Obviously their scores are being put front and center as well, but we're seeing a style of play emerge that, you know, I, quite liked it when Faldo stood there on 13 or Augusta debating whether he was going to hit a two iron or a five wood. I don't think it's quite as good now watching them hit nine irons in there. It's pretty boring. Um, and it's okay for us as golfers to think about it in that way. Um, okay. So uh, earlier you said um, you, you, you felt that creativity has fallen away. Um, and so you're talking about a style of play in your preference. Um, what do you mean by creativity has fallen away? And before, before you, you answer that, um, I have the distribution of the breakdown of how far they actually hit it on 13 at Augusta. And it's, it's not that like, I know rarely anyone is, is hitting it that close on 13 at Augusta. I, I don't have it in front of me. I can, we can pause the podcast and I can literally run into my house <laughs> and I can grab the distribution of 13 at Augusta and very few shots are under 190. 
like almost none are under 160 over the last five years. So yeah. your data on that is completely 100% incorrect. Well, you're, you're, the, data, far, you're the data guy, aren't you? Yeah, but I mean, exactly. So you got, can't put, you can't data, say the, things like the interesting people are hitting data. nine irons into, you, you can't say that people are hitting nine irons into Augusta when they're not. Okay. That's just anecdote. That's not true. It's just, it's completely false. There's more players that have more than 250 yards into Augusta than they have less than 170. Well, like, so just, you you can't you can't say those things and they're, it, when when they're not accurate and you can also go back and look at every fourth round on YouTube Augusta has all their fourth rounds back to like the late seventies and you can find plenty of examples where where Norman had one hundred and fifty five yards into thirteen back in like nineteen eighty four nineteen eighty five you can, no, you can, you you can, can see all those so no, just indulge me for a second if you if we were to look at the, if we were to look at the data and just find and just get the average club hit into thirteen or and we then laid that over how far the tee has moved back i think you know 13 at augusta is probably a slightly different hole now where you think that you think that it's not i mean in 1986 it was 465 yards in 1986 it was 465 in 1986 the average player on tour hit a 262 so if i stood up there with a driver on 13 and i hit it the average distance on tour i'm gonna have about 200 yards give or take now wind may be down when maybe in like all those things could potentially change and if you took the the longest hitting players back in 1986 they were probably you know 14 yards longer than average like 275 ish so they're going to be 185 so it's not like they used to stand there back in 1986 when they were playing persimmon and baladas and have nothing but three woods into 13 the average drive back then was 262 yeah, if they course. hit the exact average drive, they would be about 200 yards. If yeah. they hug the left, they're going to be a little closer. If they went right, they're going to be a little bit longer. So they didn't used to hit nothing but three woods in there. Okay, well, so it's just I'll, not true. I will be, I'll be very careful with my language going forwards. But I mean, if we were to look at some slightly different data, so I did, uh, I actually did some testing yesterday um, with with Bellata balls. I'm not by any means saying that we should be going back to Bellata balls. And Bellata balls are a good, a good example of progress because if you, you know, there are players that refer to Bellatas nostalgically. I mean, if you just take out a brand new Bellata now and tap it up and down on the face of a wedge versus a modern ball, the Bellata balls all over the place, you know, they just weren't very good balls. They were all they had then. But um, the interesting thing is when you make the comparison is that if you hit a modern driver with that ball, it is extremely difficult to keep the spin anywhere near under 4,000 RPMs. Um, but you, the, you your balladas that you have I think you are, are completely... You're, you're right. I'm sorry. Okay. I apologize. So I know what you're going to say, but they're straight out of the packet. But I, you know, I can remember playing balladas balls. But the ball today, for example, you know, spins at, a thou for argument's sake, 1,000 RPM. It would be pretty impossible for somebody to argue that the ball today doesn't spin at a thousand RPMs less than the blast ball. And whilst I'm not saying that we should go back to that, if you were to give these players today, just as a suggestion, if you were to give these players today a 400cc titanium driver head uh, and a ball that spins at 700 RPMs more, if a player has the skill, what would happen is they would end up playing lower loft drivers again. So they go back to 783 drivers. If they have the skill, they'll still be able to hit it 350, high 300s downhill, whatever it is. They'll still, the, the really good players will still be able to hit it those distances, but it won't be available to everyone. 
And I don't see how anyone that likes the game of golf doesn't think that would make it better to watch and would also bring into play certain different players. I mean, that the US Open, uh, where was the US Open that Bryson won? Was it Oakmont or Wingfoot? Wingfoot. Right, Wingfoot. so Wingfoot. Um, you know, that was such an example of how exposed that theory was of USGA thinking that if you just make the fairways narrow and grow the rough, that kind of solves the distance problem. I mean, it makes it bigger, it makes it wider. Uh, I can't remember what the stats were on Zach Johnson's putting performance in that final couple of rounds, but I think it, it was pretty pretty insane and he couldn't even get close. But um, I, I think it is okay to talk about the game as you know the type of game that we want to see. And I think it is incumbent on the governing bodies that they are allowed to take a longer-term view. And I think the undermining that goes on, by, mostly by people that are bought and paid for, um, is something as golfers we should be we should be a little bit up in arms about. Um, just, to, just, no, I, I would like to respond to that, Tom. Uh, so, one, your test on Bellatas is not valid because your Bellatas Bellatas had a two year shelf life, um, and Bellatas the liquid core starts to evaporate. Bellatas haven't been made in. 25 years um, ish, some, somewhere around there. So there's no, I have four dozen Bellatas right next to me over here. There's no Bellata out there um, that is, is valid. So that uh, the liquid will evaporate, uh, it will get lighter and it will lose compression. So any testing you're doing with it now is just not valid. It's not accurate. As far as the style and preference of game that you like and you prefer you prefer from what i'm hearing it, it sounds like you're saying you'd like to go back to maybe the 80s i'm, I'm going to pick a, a a decade no is, absolutely is that, not that's completely wrong 90s no what what year no i'm saying i'm talking about today what but, i'm saying is yeah, yeah but you, you want at, a different style so so what you let me ask it a better way that's not a good way so you 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 don't like the style today what time frame was the style that you enjoyed so uh, if we were to talk about, I don't know. I mean, look, I know all of the different periods of the game pretty intimately in terms of, not in terms of stats, though, in terms of what it was about sure, when yeah. it comes to actually yep. hitting a golf shot, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you go back to early days of Metal Woods, you know, we all know what the game looked like then. Actually, those early Metal Woods were pretty difficult to hit. Um, the big moments in terms of progress, you know, everybody talks about constant progress. That's, that's fake. It's not constant progress. It's just, uh, big lumps of progress and then a change in style of play. That is how the history of it works. Um, so then you take the big jump up to titanium woods, titanium woods are fantastic because they made, they actually made the game hitting driver. Well, more accessible to loads of golfers, you know, before that there were so many golfers that couldn't hit driver. Um, so that's great progress. Um, Pro V1 is slightly different. Pro V1, very good for pros. And, you know, the play, what the pros me pros play message is a bit tapped out because Pro V1 is not very good for the majority of everyday golfers. It's, it's actually quite hard for them to keep it in the air off driver. And it's quite hard for them to get a decent strike off their irons with it because they're kind of not really accessing the, they're not able to compress the ball with their irons. So they're kind of getting short game performance with the irons, with the mid irons. Um, so, I think that if we could, I'm not, I, I'm not going to talk about it in terms of time. I'm going to talk about it in terms of looking forwards, smaller headed driver, slightly softer ball that spins a bit more will, will, will create 
a slightly different style of play in the pro game. It's as simple as that. And we see that, you know, they do it in Formula One. They change the style of the tyres. They try and do things to get the cars overtaking more. I don't see as there's an... I, I understand that um, if you're only looking at this from a stats perspective, if the, if the stats are everything, um, and I understand that there are a lot of people that, that feel that way and, you know, I'm not necessarily um, that way. Um that I can understand how it might look, but it's okay for us to think about a style of play. I agree with that. I mean, we're, we're, you're, you're arguing about the style of music that you like, and this is your favorite band. This is your favorite song. Uh, but the style that you're talking about there, um, you know, if we were to rewind to a hundred years ago, the game was very different. And the style you're talking about, we could, if we could find somebody from 1914, um, to come and join us on this podcast, they would say that the style that you're advocating for is wildly different than what they think the game should be. Back with hickory shafts and and, and uh, feathery golf balls, um, that's how the game was meant to be played, uh, not what you're talking about. And, and so why does your time frame, why is your time frame or your style better than the style of 130 years ago well, i think because it's i think the the point of view on that on that side would be that it's it's closer to it basically so the the type of golf shot that james is advocating for and the style of play is closer to um the way the game was intended in the beginning and i think it's a little bit it's a little bit like trying to compare parkland golf to heath and golf or Lynx golf in that firm turf and uh, windy conditions are inherently sort of more nuanced. There's more variables to the game. There's more different ways. There's, there's different ways of doing it. And what we're seeing at the top end of the game is that there's one way of doing it. And this sort of strive for efficiency is making the game less interesting. Um, you probably don't play cricket, but here we have like test match cricket, which is dying on its ass because it takes too long and no one's got the attention span for it. And we've, they've tried to develop shorter forms in 2020 and the 100 and they've got fireworks and they've got colourful outfits and it is kind of like entertaining a level but it's it's fundamentally a less interesting version of the game because there's less to it it's not as rich it's le there's less depth um, that's all opinion though it's just simply preference and, and i'm not sure what does it mean like how is the game intended to be played what does that mean well, I think it means that everything starts somewhere. So the genesis of the game is Lynx golf courses in Scotland and the game was played on the ground to a degree. Now, obviously, things have moved on since that day, but the, the, the type of architecture that we're trying to protect is the type of architecture that um, we see at the old course. And you do, you, to a degree, you see it at Augusta. And I, I did want to go back to the Augusta point because I completely take on board your statistics about the 13th. And I think that both sides of this argument actually look at um, that particular hole in rose-tinted rose um, spectacles. Like we've all, we, all, everyone remembers that Faldo iron shot, um, but everyone equally remembers Bubba Watson cutting the corner here and wedging. Um, so I do think sort of both of the things that you're saying are true. But I would be interested in, in where you think this ends for Augusta. Like, so if if nobody steps in and, and nothing is done to kind of, I don't care where it ends. You don't. I don't care. really. I don't care. I mean, no. we're talking about a golf. We're talking about a golf course that literally bought a neighborhood and knocked down, every, overpaid for every house in the neighborhood except one. There's one holdout still. Knocked yeah. them all down so they could have a parking lot. I don't really care what Augusta does and where it ends up. I still enjoy watching it, 
I've always enjoyed watching it. I will all, and, and that's not going to change. I don't care where it ends up. And I'm not sure what we're protecting it from. And, and we're, we're only focused on the professional game here. Like we have, we're not even talking about amateurs and, yeah. and, and amateurs make up 99.9% more or, or more of, of golfers. Yeah. Like we're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. And, well, I think and, and could, what, what does it mean? Like, I, I still don't understand, like, how was it intended to be played? I mean, I, if we're, if we're really trying to get back to the intention of the game, are, are you an advocate for going back to not being able to clean your golf ball on the green? Uh, because it's, that's how it used to, you used to not be able to clean your golf ball on the green. You used to not be able to take something like an unplayable lie. That's how the game was played for many, many, many years, hundreds of years. Um, are we advocating going back to that if that's how the game was intended to play or do we pick and choose what we think the intentions are that matter to us? How does that work? So do you, yeah, no, do you feel, I... Lou, is there, is there a role to be played? Do you, do you feel that there is a role to be played for governing bodies in golf or do you think that it should all just be let rip? There, it's not let rip. They have regulations in no, place. I'm not, and I'm not saying it is. Since 2004. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying I'm, I'm just giving that I'm trying to figure out where you stand on that thing. So I'm not when you when you take something and you sort of suggest that I'm saying the one extreme. I'm not. I'm just trying to get an idea of where you stand on it. No, we absolutely need governing bodies. We need someone to manage the rules. Do I think the rules could be significantly easier than they are? Yes. I mean, that's a, a totally separate conversation. The rules of golf are incredibly challenging, and we're meant to police ourselves. Um, and and that's a, that's those things don't align, right? So yeah, there has to be rules in place. I, I think they do a fantastic job with turf and agronomy and helping golf courses and the research that they do. Absolutely 100% needed. Uh, I do think they're trying to help grow the game and expand the game. So yes, absolutely needed. Uh, do we need regulations around equipment? Yes, we have them. They've been in place. Current restrictions have been in place since 2004. So yes, I, I absolutely believe that we need governing bodies. And do I think we need maybe a better handicap system and a better course rating system? I do. Like I, I think there's a lot of challenges with that. So there are things that um, I think they do well, and there are things that I think they should should do better um, or could do better. Um, so just if we can just try and round off the debate on um, the kind of elite pro game, I guess. So I think like there's, there's so much to it, isn't there? And like James, you said, is that is the Bryson DeChambeau, for want of a better expression, method of playing golf something that we want to see? Well, I think for a lot of people it is. Like a lot of people celebrate him um, hitting it over the, uh, the pond at Bay Hill. Um, I think that like that is exciting for a lot of people. I've had a, I had a weekend long Twitter argument with someone on exactly that topic where like for a lot of people, the sort of advancement in length is something to celebrate and that sort of big hitting is exciting. And it's that people argue that it's bringing new people to the game. But I do think there has to be some acceptance on the other side, Lee, that you, you saw, you said earlier, you didn't know what the sort of obsolescence of golf courses meant. Well, I think for some people, the kind of lineage that's curated at places like Augusta and places like the old course and the history that's, is worth protecting basically and if you if you having to change those golf courses to make them unrecognizable from the challenge they once were then that's kind of a, a big part of golf that's that's lost forever um, and and we are and we are seeing a, this version of augusta that we look at now um it's kind of a mickey mouse version of augusta right it's not you know augusta's not really supposed to have rough they're growing the fairway grass into the player 
you know, it wasn't always as green as it is now. It's it's a it's a version of Augusta, which is, you know, if we do have ever, any reverence for the intention of that great course designer that that designed it, Mackenzie, it's you know, it's not what what he intended. So as far uh, that's an interesting comment that there's rough there now and, and there there only used to be fairway there. Um, but one of the reasons for this rollback is sustainability. Um, and maintaining fairways, maintaining short grass on golf courses is the most expensive cost. It's, it's yeah. a, roughly about $9,000 per acre of fairway, about $70,000 per acre of green. Um, and are, are we advocating for way more fairway? You'd like to, to go back and because that just completely destroys the sustainability argument. Um, it is, is, do we, do we, do we only care about sustainability, um, uh, in some instances and not other instances? How does that work? Well, I think it, uh, it's like, uh, I'm laughing cause I think it's like, it's like a classic thing about this particular debate where we all have access to the same information. I totally agree with you about cutting rough. It's like the least green thing you can do. You destroy natural habitats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that is the, the best form of the game of golf, in my view, is that to have no rough and it's all about creating good angles into interesting green complexes. The flip side of that argument is there's not a lot sustainable about having to build lots and lots of new back tees on a constant basis. So there's kind of two edges to that as well, isn't there? But I totally take the point. Um, I think we should angles. A uh, couple of things there. Um, uh, you know, so you're completely you don't care about sustainability in golf. Then it's kind of what I heard. Um, and uh, as a separate topic. <laughs> angles don't matter they make no difference angles do not matter i've studied uh, this at the amateur <laughs> level at the professional level i just recently had a discussion with a i don't want to give away who it is but i'll say a top 10 top, top 20 player in the world who works with um a person on his analytics um and he reached out to me and said you know my my team did a deep dive on angles on shot link data you know, going back to 2004, and you're correct. They don't matter. And they don't. You can on, think they, that they matter, that. but they don't. Hang on. They've done that on tour, on the courses they've played on tour since 2004, right? Correct. Or, I've, I've done it at the amateur the courses, level. And how many of the courses that majors have played on? Was it, was it majors as well? It doesn't even matter. Yeah, it doesn't even matter at Augusta. Like you can go on 11 at Augusta and everyone thinks the right side is the better angle. It's not. You actually score higher from there. Yeah, so angles so, do not matter. Lou, I think, there's a, the, the, I think we need to move this debate on from the pro game. But I mean, I've subscribed a decade over the years and I would say that in, in my own golf when trying to play competitively I'm like all over those stats and the, the short-sided thing is fascinating isn't it that you are you're more likely to make a par or better from short-siding yourself off the tee than you are from creating the wider angle it's like it, I get I completely get all that I think the point that I that I sort of feel is I would like that angle to matter that's kind of the point I would like a, a firm and fast golf course with lots of width where the better angle is rewarding me and because of equipment it's not but that, that just completely flies in the face of sustainability, right? It's very expensive. So if we're concerned about cost, yeah. it's very expensive to maintain all that fairway space. Incredibly yeah. expensive. Like some yeah. of the new courses in the United States that have been built recently that are of the style that you would enjoy and you would like, they have 40 plus acres of fairway. Yeah. And the average golf course in the United States is 27.1 acres of fairway. So yeah. they might have 13 to 18 acres of additional fairway. That's 
a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year in additional cost just only for the fairways. Now, most maintenance budgets are going to be somewhere between, you know, I think the average is about eight hundred thousand a year, give or take. That's going to vary by golf course. But you, if you if you're at an, a, a golf course that has an eight hundred thousand dollar maintenance budget. And now you just increased it by $140,000 because you really want wide fairways. Um, that just flies in the face of, of sustainability and caring about sustainability and caring about water, fertilizers, chemicals, labor, all of those things that are needed. And, and so, like, I get it. Trust me. I like wide fairways, too, because I hit the ball in a pretty big area in a pretty big space. Um, so I, I enjoy that, but I also recognize that it's extremely expensive uh, to have golf courses set up that way. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's also a style thing though, isn't it? I mean, I think we've probably got quite a lot of courses here in the UK where it's just a different climate and, you know, they haven't even got fairway sprinklers. Um, you know, they're very they're very low maintenance. I just think there's there's a lot more of those high maintenance courses in the US. Yeah, and yeah. I guess the, the, the sustainability argument, I mean, it's one of these things It's very, very, very difficult to get anyone to engage with the sustainability argument properly. It's what often put up as something that uh, is the reason for change, but it doesn't excite people. Um, I guess the, the the argument against longer tees on the same basis is just the, the length of time the game takes, which is a hot topic on tour. It's also a hot topic for the club golfer. Um, our, our audience is predominantly club golfers. And I think what we've seen change with this RNA ruling is that we've gone from a position where bifurcating seemed likely um, and we've now gone to a universal rollback. And I think, what do you think the feeling is amongst our readers on that, Steve? Like, do you think there would have been a preference for bifurcating? Do you think that the universal rollback is something that um, our readers are anti in the main? Um, I think that the average club golfer... Uh, if you take, I mean, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because it's difficult. To, it's difficult to take social media and say that that is a definitive view of club golfers. It's a view of the loudest club golfers. Um, you know, th that is true. But the the view of them has been mainly towards the negative. I'm not sure if that's because they understand it properly or whether they do and they just don't like what they say. I mean, I argued last week, didn't I, that I thought that um, the idea of selling a reduced distance ball to club golfers was going to be pretty difficult because as an in the industry has told us for close on two decades now, buy this driver, get more distance, get this ball, it's our longest ever hitting ball. So then to then say to club golfers, right, now the now the ball's going to be reduced for you because of the need to rein distance in at the very top level is 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 particularly difficult. I mean, I, I wonder what you guys, James and Lou, think about this because I do feel like the the club player, the recreational golfer, is kind of an unintended consequence of what's happened on Wednesday in the sense that the MLR was clearly not designed to include the recreational game at all and because the industry in general has said we're not prepared to accept bifurcation and the MLR. Now we've got this position where club golfers are going to be affected by it. And you can argue, I think, about whether it'll affect them or whether it'll not in terms of distance. There's varying views on that, I agree. But what, what's your general position? What's your general feeling about the amateur game and the recreational game? Do you want to kick us James, off, James? I'll, I'll let you go first, James. Um, well, I think it's important to note that it was the... You know, it's the industry that um, art would really push for that to happen. And they were involved and during the consultation period and everything. I think a lot of times there's this anger towards the governing bodies for doing that. But it's the that's the industry part of it. 
Um, the second thing, which is sort of slightly inevitable, is that you know the the reason that the industry um, pushes for that is because this sort of really tired marketing message of play what the pros play is just like the you know it just runs through the whole thing. And I think that it wouldn't be a bad thing maybe to kind of move on from that. Um, and bifurcation might have been a really good way of doing that. Um, and the other thing is that if you if you consider the things that so. I've spoken to a couple of people at the RNA about this, and there's definitely this idea that um, they really want for things to be linear. They don't want things to benefit some players and to not benefit other players, um, but it's inevitable. So the technical side of this is that there's no way of doing these things that doesn't take away from some and give to the others. The good news is, which nobody can obviously say because it does slightly undermine the way that these products have been marketed, is that um, there are loads of things that you can do that rein in the top players a bit that actually are quite a good thing for the for the everyday golfer. So um, if you take like a, you know, whatever it is, you know, a top tour ball today um, and it's a little bit goes a little bit further than 317 yards. You've got a few options as to how to get it under that 317. You can make it a bit higher spinning. Uh, you can make it a bit softer and you can make it a bit less aerodynamic. Um, a bit less aerodynamic is probably the one that would have the most linear effect across all golfers. If you make that ball a bit softer or a bit higher spinning, generally speaking, and obviously everyone's different and there's a million ways to skin the cat, but generally speaking, that will mean that actually the everyday golfer doesn't really, doesn't really lose at all. Um, and you know, it's, it's very difficult for, anyone that's any of the sort of stakeholders involved in this situation to really say that, you know, I think if the governing bodies say that they're probably going to get in hot water. And if the equipment companies say that it will feel a bit disingenuous. So I think that's the, that's the sort of tricky thing about it. And it's, I, if you well, like you said earlier, the balls that will be okay on this test that are okay today will be the, the lower compression balls or the higher spinning balls. And those are the balls that, you know, there are, there are, using pro balls that are probably hitting it shorter with, to be honest with you. So a couple of things there. Um, to say that this is the fault of the, you're basically saying it's the equipment manufacturer's fault and, and, and no, others in the industry so that's has, has pushed thing. back around, you know, rolling back for everybody. I, no. I think, is that what you said? No. It's what not I said what you're was, saying? So the the initial idea, which was which was the model local rule, which would be a rule which there would be certain balls that were, they weren't able to play in pro tournaments and elite amateur golf. Yep, that was the initial suggestion. And then after the consultation period, now it's a, now they're saying that it's a it's a the new rule for everyone. So it's the rule of golf. Right. But the initial the initial suggestion when they originally came out with this was, hey, we're thinking about. Uh, we're thinking about um, distance, you know, potentially impacting equipment. And they took feedback during that period and they pushed back um, and the comments were received and said, no, we don't, we don't want rollback. We're not interested. And then the governing bodies went back and said earlier this year, they came out with round two and they said model local rule. Um, and again, the industry said, we're not interested in that. Um, and now the, the final decision, quote unquote, final decision is, well, we're just going to roll it back for everyone. And I don't, 
so I just clarifying, I don't think you said it's it's the fault of the industry that we have to roll back for everyone. Um, but there's a, a number of people out there saying, well, if you would have just accepted the model local rule, like we wouldn't be here. And that would be like, let me do an analogy here for you. The governing bodies said, and, and, and I'm going to put this in a negative light. So I'll just say that. The governing bodies said, um, hey, we can either punch you in the face or kick you in the stomach. What do you think? <laughs> um, and everyone said, nope. Uh, we don't want that. And they said, all right, we're just going to punch you in the face. Yeah. And they said, nope, we don't want that. And then they said, all right, well, we're going to punch you in the face and kick you in the stomach. And this is your fault. You could have only had one. This is your fault. No. That's essentially how this has played out. No, Absolutely. You, you, 100%. You, you framed it up quite nicely, though. But there's I, and I'm not bits. saying that's, that's what you're saying. No, I hate so, to be pedantic. But there's one particular thing that you did there. Um, which is when you said that the industry came back the first time and said, no, we don't want that. I mean, of course, the industry are going to say, no, we don't want that. They take a three to five year view. They're kind of, you know, they want to keep doing things the way they're doing it. They think they're onto something, you know, post COVID boom, everyone thinks they're a genius, whatever. But what actually happened was that the industry is always going to say, uh, the golf equipment companies are always going to say, no, we don't want that. Right. So they've said, no, we don't want that all the way through. But in the second phase, you know, the RNA basically, the RNA and the USGA basically said, this is coming. Um, we're still going to go through this consultation phase. And they, and one of the particular things that they said they didn't want is they said, we, we want it to apply to all golfers. They, in particular, they said that. So that's what they got. It wasn't, no, we don't want that. And then the governing body's chairman said, well, now we're going to punch you in the face and kick you in the gut. That's a little bit of a sort of reach to say that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so I'll follow up with that then uh, where the governing bodies have said, look, there's no problem with distance in amateur golf. Um, they're not going to obsolete golfers anytime soon. So if the governing bodies actually had total and complete authority, they would have just said, listen, we realize that rolling back for the amateurs is not a good idea. We're not going to do that. We are going to implement a model local rule and we are only going to impact the elite game. Because they, in their own words, have said, we don't want to impact the amateur game. It's not a problem. The CEO of the RNA said that, Slumbers. Juan said that. And so if the governing bodies had actual real authority over professional golf, they would have just made the decision to implement the model local rule. But the PGA Tour said, we're not interested. We don't want it. No, thank you. So what does that mean for it? It's kind of like being a kid and having a a parent where the parent says, you go do this. And the kid's like, no, I'm not going to do that. The parent doesn't really have any authority, right? So are we saying the governing bodies don't have any real authority over the PGA Tour? And the only way they're going to force this is by harming amateur golfers so that the industry is put into a position where all they can make are these new golf balls because it's 99.9% of this, the golfing population. This is not going to harm, this is not going to harm amateur golfers. It's Which is hundred percent it is a thousand percent it will. This it is the question that I was. This is the question yes, I actually will. wanted to get let's to. Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah I want yeah, to so, talk about that. So, so let's so let's introduce that. I mean, obviously, the the press release has said um, minimizing the impact on the on the recreational game. It's in the first paragraph of it. Then, obviously, they talk later on and say the change in testing speed is expected to have a minimal distance impact, five yards or less, for most recreational golfers. I was quite interested in. 
the research using the average swing speed of 93 miles an hour, because that's exactly what I am with a driver, 93 miles an hour. Um, so I just wondered what, what you thought about that. I mean, five yards or less, a minimum dist- a minimal distance impact is what the RNA and the USG are saying. I mean, do you agree with that, James? Is that a minimal? Should, should, should I be happy to accept five yards? Does it really matter? Well, they're they're talking about it in in linear terms, so that's just a straight. Of course, they are. Yeah, yeah percentage, yeah. and and uh, uh, I don't think that you know it's a bit okay. So this is a bit of an analogy, but it's like if you were to take um, this thing that the distance, 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 and then everyone is thinking, oh, I need more speed, speed, speed. I mean, the people that need more speed to hit it further are the pros because they're really good at hitting it out the middle of the club, but for the average player. Um, hitting it out the middle of the club way trumps an, an increase of five miles per hour of speed. So that five, that five, uh, that five yards on your best drive, you know, you're you're not really going to notice it. Now, if that if the end result is that you end up playing a softer compression ball, which you can actually compress with a mid iron, you're going to pick up yardage with your mid irons. So it's, I I honestly. And you know, if if the ball if the if the ball manufacturers were to decide to you know punish everyday golfers by just making the ball less aerodynamic and making it a linear thing, which I don't think they'll do because it makes them pretty vulnerable to just a better ball coming along. I, I you know I don't think that'll be the case. So I think you know they they have to talk about it in that way. But the reality is, it's it, the the effect for the everyday golfer is is not really going to be noticed. Could come in on that, Lou. Do yards matter? They absolutely matter. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a, a long rambling here. So one, we do not know how they're going to implement the change to the golf ball. We have no idea what the changes are going to be. I've seen no data from them other than a few sentences that um, the recreational player will only be impacted by about five yards. I've seen no data, no studies, no information other than the recreational players only going to be impacted five yards. I do have here um, a document, Equipment Specification Research from June 2022 from the USGA. Uh, they did a, a wide-ranging study that about nine, they had 977 golfers, and they created two um, limited flight golf balls. Um, and one was 4.5% shorter, one was 8% shorter. And there were two different styles here. Uh, one was impacted through some dimple pattern changes. Uh, they made some other changes through through weight. Uh, and then there's some other changes in here as well. But essentially, one was 4.5% shorter, one was 8% shorter. And then they had players test these. And when you look at the impact, the percentage impact to tour players versus the average male amateur, which is what we're talking about here, the average male amateur was impacted at a higher percentage than tour players with, the, with, the, with their own studies. So I'm, I'm, I would love to see actual data on this five-yard number. But as far as that not mattering, it absolutely matters. Every yard matters to amateur players, to players at every level. Uh, 10 yards, if you lose 10 yards year over year, I've done this study in Arcos. Depending on the player, you're going to lose anywhere between one and three shots, depending on the player. Five yards, you will lose strokes. You will absolutely lose strokes. And here's why I think that's really important. Is it important for the five of us? No, we're golf junkies. We're still going to go, we're still going to play no matter what, even if our handicaps go up a stroke. 
We're still going to play. We're not going to change. Here's where the issue is. The NGF, the National Golf Foundation, they've been studying this for years. Golf has a big retention problem. Um, it's very we, we have a leaky bucket. We have a, we add a lot of new players to the game every year, but we lose a lot of players every single year. And it's very important to retain those. We need to turn these non-committed golfers into committed golfers. So we have these casual players. We need to make them committed players so that we can continue to feed the machine. If we don't, we start to see huge fall-offs in participation, like we did after the 2008 you know, global economic crisis. Yeah, but, I mean, you and could so, argue, Lou. You no, could argue let me that, finish. Sorry, I, I, yeah, I, I am not done. I got a, a lot more to go <laughs> on this. And, and so what happens is they studied why people leave. And one of the leading reasons at the very, very top why people leave that are casual players um, is golf is very hard and they get very frustrated. And so every shot matters. And they have this really interesting data where you see players where they start to shoot about 100. And as they progress down each stroke, like their passion increases. And as their passion increases, the likelihood that they become committed golfers changes significantly. So we need to stop the fall off of players. And Impacted very, very much by this are the shortest hitting players, especially women. So there's people out there that talk about when the when the small ball went away and people lost distance. And one of them is Michael Clayton. I'm sure you guys know who Michael Clayton is. Yep. He talks about that all the time. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is if you look, I'm, and I've looked at this in Australia, right? So where Michael's from. When you look at golf participation in, a, in Australia, before the small ball was banned, women were 30% of the golf population in Australia. They're, after the, the ball went away, they're down to 19%. They've fallen. Over that same time period in the United States, particip participation by women has gone from 20% to 25%. Women have it extremely, extremely hard. There was another gentleman you were going to have on this pod who is um, – owns the Addington or runs Ryan the Knight. Addington golf course, yeah. right? So the shortest tee at the Addington is 5,440 yards. Um, most women, many women, uh, re again, remember 160 yards is about the average for women. Um, most women are 40-ish are percent are 150 or less. If you hit the ball 150, now I, wa I really want this to sink in for you guys. If you hit the ball 150, you should be playing about 3,600 yards. Yeah. Like the only option at the Addington is 5,400 yards. Yeah. That would be like a tour pro, tour pro playing at 10,900. The back tees at the Addington are 6,300. If, if 6,300 was the correct yardage for you, that would be like putting you at 9,500 yards. So for women, it's extremely, extremely challenging. And my hypothesis is that when the small ball went away and everybody got shorter, you saw the group that's impacted significantly by this, women in Australia, you saw their participation shrink up pretty heavily. No, I, so I, taking away distance from, from women is only going to make the game harder for them. Taking away distance from short hitters is only going to make the game harder for them, which is going to impact golfer retention. And it's going to impact the number of golfers that we turn into committed golfers. That is 100% what is going to happen here. Lou, I got to I agree with just about everything you just said. We are totally on the two things. One is the start point, 
right? So when the USGA did that piece of research, they they did it based on weight and aero, right? So those are both linear factors. So what they've done is they have actually taken distance away from players. What I'm saying is there are things that you can do with the specification of the ball that rein the pros in a bit and give the average player a bit more. So I'll give you an example. I've done lots of testing on this. I have got made golf balls and done loads of testing on this. But um, I have somebody that works here. He's quite a good player, but he doesn't hit the ball very far. Hits it about 235 off the tee. Uh, if he hits a Pro V1, I'm talking about a six iron here. If he hits a Pro V1 with a six iron, um, his spin rate will be, for argument's sake, six and a half thousand RPMs. If he hits, if we did this particular test, which was a tailor-made tour responsible, which is about an 80 compression ball. If he hits that ball with a six iron, spin rate drops down by a thousand RPMs because he's compressing the ball more and he picks up about 15 yards with his six iron. So the point I was making before at the start was that there are things that you can do. So that that test and that and if you reduce everybody's distance, everyone agrees with that, Lou, right? That's absolutely fact logical. We all agree with that. And on the retention thing, where you talk about lady golfers and distances of golf courses, of course courses have got too long. Of course, that is very difficult for people that are beginners. But the point that you made there speaks no, 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 to because they got too long. Speaks to bifurcation. You know, of course, yes, we need to bifurcate the game because then we can give loads to those players at the, at the start of their golfing journey or those people that don't hit it quite as far. We, but this whole thing of you have to keep it the same, right? Everybody has to be playing roughly what the pros are playing. But that's you the only thing have to really bifurcate hurt. if you... That's hurt the average golfer <clears throat> way more than any change. But again, you only have to bifurcate if you pr- prefer a certain preference, a certain style of the game, and you and you want to see. And and again, like I don't know what that style is, like and I don't know how it's any not, different than than what it was in the '60s or '70s. That's not what I'm like saying. Like they played golf courses much shorter back then. If you look at the, that's, it, that's not what like, I'm saying, Luke. What I'm saying is, play what the pros play has benefited the pros. It hasn't benefited the average golfer. You know, this idea that everyone is using equipment, which is now, you know, everybody's using a ball and now there's going to be this change and they're all going to lose distance and it's going to hurt the game. It's false. It's true if you look at it and, you, and you're selective with your data points, you know, which you have been, you know, you select those data That's points, which are, absolutely which are the not. linear ones. Absolutely no, you not. Because you ignored the fact that you can do things. What did I ignore? You, you went, because it was that test was done on weight and aero, which is a reduction Wait, be, hold for on, everyone. Be, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I led off with, I don't know. I, before I went into referring to that test, I said, I have not seen any data at all on how they're going to reduce and only limit the impact to five yards for the recreational player. They haven't released any of that information. They've given no tests on well, that. They, all they doing, did was, I said that. Yeah, all what, they, they're not said, you're inferring what they're doing. No, you, what they, have, they have not said what they're doing. No, what they are, what the, the governing body is doing is they're being very disciplined in terms of they're saying okay we are going to test the balls and we're not going to make and we are absolutely not going to make any suggestion on what those changes of the ball should be now i think that's a mistake i think that there are two mistakes that are being made here one is uh they should be open with their knowledge that they've got they should be open with the independent testing that they've done they keep that to themselves and they should make a recommendation on a certain type of specification, a few parameters and the actual specification of the ball, not just what the ball does, because when they make the ruling on just what the ball does, which I understand why they've done it, because all they've got to do is just change the parameters of their existing test. 
when it's about what the ball actually does, it leaves open the all of the things that could be done. And we all know, well, that weight and aero are linear ones and that they're things they could do. But that but compression and spin are the ones that are quite interesting because at that speed, that brings them inside, but it's good for the average player. But nobody can say it. It's just that, you know, that is what will happen. But even if they even if amateurs lose five yards, their scores are going to go up. And if scores go up, it, again, it doesn't matter for you and I. No, you know, we're still going to play the game. They're not going to But lose it five will yards. impact beginner. But Pardon me? They're not going to James, if you, if, you just, if, you, if you just, James, but if you, you just accept for the purposes of moving the conversation on, if you just accept that the rollback is going to mean that with driver, some players are going to be shorter. Like, I think that it, that is a debate worth having. Like, what is the net result of that? Would it Will it lead to newer players leaving the game in bigger number because the game's got harder? Personally, I think it won't. Will it will it mean we might finally see people accepting shorter golf courses as being more normal? I hope it does. Um, I think it's that it is an there is an interesting aspect of it is what will be the impact if that is either the perception or the reality of people hitting it shorter. And I can tell you, as far as golf courses, you, you said golf courses are getting longer. The golf courses that were built in the eighties were longer than the golf courses built in the twenty tens. Hundred percent in the, the United worst States. ever arch- right. decade right. for architecture. Yeah, that's right. So golf courses are actually getting golf courses are getting smaller. They're shrinking. Yes. They're making them smaller. Yeah. And the fact that there's not enough short tees is not because golf courses are longer. That problem has been around forever. Yeah, forever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's, it has nothing to do with golf courses getting longer. And all we're doing is hurting a, a, a segment of the population that doesn't hit the ball very far. And we're making it harder for them. And that is not going to help retention. That is going to hurt retention. Yeah. Um, alongside a, a myriad of other factors, I, t- take, I, I think there is some broad agreement on that aspect of it. Um, I think we're approaching your hard stop, aren't we? Lee? I can continue. I, I can continue on. I'm, I've made some adjustments as, as we've we've gone here. So okay, well, I'm mean, happy we have, to continue on for a bit. If we have got a few more minutes, I think um, I think it's worth just continuing the debate about the length of golf courses. Um, so we, we, for the, for the amateur golfer, I think there are obviously multiple sets of tees that they make choices to play from. Um, and ego says that most people will seek out the furthest back tees or they'll seek out the limits of their ability in terms of way that, where they play from. If, the, if you're trying to look at the kind of intention around the rollback uh, on a sort of, on a macro level, my hope would be that uh, shorter forms of the game become more acceptable. And I always sort of lean on a couple of local examples to us where where yellow tees or white tees have been put in and if you walk the course from the red tees it's just far better walk there's a better flow to the golf course it's quicker the views are better the golf course sets up better from the front tees because they were the original set of tees like i uh, one of my hopes is that this kind of step change might start to mean that we're playing more people are playing from further forward more often um, and whether that would be more of a smoking gun for keeping people in the game for longer, because it would take less time, they would take fewer shots, they might enjoy it a bit more. Um, and that that is one, I hope, one potential positive outcome from shortening the golf ball. 
Um, I've, I don't know that that's going to happen. Uh, so the, the USGA started the Tee It Forward campaign in 2011. Yeah. And they started that to encourage players to move forward and play tee boxes that are more appropriate for their the length that they hit the golf ball. And it didn't really work all that well. And we still have about one in three golfers that are playing tees that are too long for their skill level. Um, and we don't have many people teeing it from way back. Um, I mean, I, I, I see all this data in Arcos. I mean, we're we're going to hit a, bil- a, a billion shots in Arcos sometime in the next few months. And to put that in perspective, ShotLink has been around since 2004. They have less than 30 million shots in there. We have a significant amount of data, amateur data, across the world. So I can see where people are playing from. And something that I looked at earlier this week, and it's it's fascinating. And I, I think it is why the Tee It Forward campaign struggled. So I, I looked at players um, and I looked at where they were playing from. And I looked at the golf course that they were playing at. And then I looked at what was the next shortest option? What was the ne- next shortest tee box for them? And so if you're playing in the 62 to 6,300 yard range, um, 61% of golf courses, the next shortest option was more than 400 yards up. Um, and 500 yards up was the next shortest option for 43% of golf courses. So let's assume that you're playing at 6250 and that's an appropriate length for you. And let's say that the rollback is going to take away you know, 10 yards, let's just say 10 yards for this level player, you should move up probably about 200 yards is what the guidelines would tell you. But you don't have that option. Like there's so many options where the next tee box up is five or 600 yards up. And in my hypothesis there is there's a lot of players that are playing in the 61, 62 to 65, 66 range and their next shortest option is 600 yards away. And now they get into a situation where the golf course is too short. And so rolling back and taking distance away, even if it's a few yards, for those players that, that are playing tee boxes currently that are, are too long for them, um, and if we take distance away from them um, and they move up, um, in some cases, they're still going to be playing tee boxes too far from them. But we, we, we have this problem of these huge gaps between tee boxes. And I think over in the UK, I think, I don't know, I, I've, I've never golfed there, but I, I think it's very common to have three tees over there at a lot of clubs. Um, you've, never, where you've never golfed here. Wow. I've never golfed there. I, Crossfield's there and I try to, <laughs> I, I don't want to be too close to him. Only yeah. through Zoom is my preference with, with Mark. <laughs> um, so I, I think that that's a huge contributing problem. Um, and I, And I don't know uh, the best answer, I, I think more combo tees is a really good option. Like we do that at a lot of golf co- golf courses here now where there'll be a, a, a blue tee and a white tee and then there'll be another course you can play that's a combination of blue and white holes on different holes. But this is a big problem and I think it's going to – we're still going to have a lot of golfers that are in a situation where I just got seven yards shorter – whatever the number happens to be, um, I'm playing at 6250 
and my next option is 5,600. I'm not going to go play at 5,600. And from what I see in the data, that's, that's a big issue. Yeah. Why do you think, why do you think people won't play at 5,600? Um, it's a good question. I, I think since the, I think for many years, um, I think what's happened is if you go back to the 1960s with Golf Digest, it was, I, I don't know the exact year, but that's the first year that they had the, you know, their 200 most difficult golf courses um, and 200 toughest golf courses, I, I think what it was. And it became a cover article every year. And what happened was um, it became a marketing point for golf courses, right? They wanted to make that list. Um, and so people started to make golf courses longer. They started to build golf courses longer because they wanted to make that list because it got them a lot of pub publicity. It helped to draw more rounds. It helped to draw more rep members. Um, and we've been told, you know, in the Distance Insight report, they have some history on the game. And, and going back, there's some really interesting articles in there from the 20s and 30s uh, even about St. Andrews and and how a, a proper championship golf course is really long. Uh, and so I think for a long time now, it's been drilled into us that unless you're playing from the back tees, you're not playing a proper golf course. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that still exists today. Like I often will try to get my friends uh, to you know move off of 6,500 and go up to 6,100. Um, and I hit the ball plenty far to be playing from 6,500, um, but not all of them do. Um, and I know it's better for them to be up there. And it's a struggle. It's a real struggle to get them to move up. And, and I think that problem is embedded in golf. Um, but we still, we don't have a lot of players playing at 6,900, 7,000 yards. We don't have that issue. So all of these back tees, like it's, it's infuriating to me that Mike Wan was out there telling golf courses to prepare, to invest, to lengthen when it's just simply not needed. Um, especially when you consider that, you know, on the PGA Tour, let's start with them for an example, they rarely play the golf course with the yardage on the scorecard. They always play way shorter yeah. than the yardage on the scorecard. And as a college coach, I can tell you that that happens in the college level. I have a bunch of data from the 19 or the 2020 season, uh, 1920 season, all division one golf. I have like 35,000 rounds in there and the median scorecard yardage was 7,031 yards. And these are division one college players in the United States really good. So just over 7,000 yards. It was the median scorecard yardage. I can tell you in every tournament I've ever been at, we've never played the scorecard yardage. We're always anywhere from 50 to 400 yards up from what the yardage is on the scorecard. So that median distance of 7,051 yards for division one college players is probably going to be 6,900, 6,925 you know, somewhere in that range. So for, for golf courses to be thinking they need to put in a tee box at 7,500 yards, that's just madness. It's absolute lunacy. I mean, there's only only 5% of the rounds last year on the PGA Tour, this year on the PGA Tour, were played over 7,500. These are the best 150 players on the planet. Like we don't need some, some 10 index playing off of 7,200 yards. And it's just foolish. So stop building them. That The governing body should be telling golf courses, stop doing this. You do not need long tees. Yeah, I, I think... 
like 100% agree with everything that you're saying. Um, it's interesting that, you, again, you sort of end up in a different place from a conclusion point of view. So I think here, certainly, there is a bit of a movement away, well, there's a lot of a movement away from some of that 1980s architecture that you described and the sort of classic kind of um, course yardage books that describe things as being a challenging par four and extremely difficult. And we have this sort of macho rhetoric around golf where it's supposed to be as hard as possible. And you mentioned sort of top 100 lists. If you look at kind of golf monthly or our top 100 list from 15 years ago or 20 years ago, they'd have a lot of these sort of big championship and in inverted commas inland venues with kind of fortress greens that that were over 7,000 yards. And those places have kind of disappeared out of the list and they've been replaced by kind of funner, shorter, um, more accessible courses. I'm thinking of places like Tabmarn Heath or Kilspindy in, in um, East Lothian or Seacroft in Lincolnshire, where I'm from. These kind of like shorter, um, kind of bouncy links courses, there is a renaissance for that type of golf. And I, I guess my brain is going to a place where by shortening the golf ball, you're bringing in more and more of those places, like just by stealth almost, pardon the pun. But who are you bringing them in for? I mean, amateurs are not hitting the golf ball far. They just they just don't. Um, there's very very few players that are hitting the ball, you know, over 270 yards. Yeah, I so have like, all the data point. data from Arcos. There's in 270 yards. It, it, it that, that's you're very rare to find golfers hitting it that far. But but, but what you what you've just done there? I mean, you you've just formed all of that is just <laughs> such a compelling argument for bifurcation. I mean, it is. That's, no, it's not. That's it's not. A, no, it's not a compelling argument for bifurcation. The only compelling argument for bifurcation is if you assume there's a problem. I'm saying there is no problem. Well, no, you're, and I've you're yet to see any evidence. I've yet to see any evidence other than I prefer a different style of game to support bifurcation. Okay, None. So, all right, just to just to indulge on this one a little bit, if that's all right. I mean the. I think that the the tee it forward campaign was was kind of the thing that initiated it was that piece of research that Barney Adams did about he did comparisons about you know if you have a golfer that hits the ball two forty off the tee you know what is what length does he have to play the course at for it to be similar to one of the top pros or whatever and they were kind of getting to you know pros pro if pro plays at that yardage this guy needs to play it like much shorter down at five thousand yards or whatever so there is this massive gap this enormous, enormous gap. Um, and obviously I agree with, you know, that championship golf course and in inverted commas, but I don't understand why, um, if you, if you took away, even if you said, even if you, if you said within the rules as it is now for amateur golfers, you didn't change the rule for the pros, but you said for amateur golfers, we're going to, we're going to let it go. I mean, not non-conforming equipment is actually quite popular in Japan. They, they, you know, a lot of the yeah. Japanese websites yeah. have got have got both versions, um, and it's a thing in Japan. I mean, to be honest with you, when I was I was kind of saying, you know, quite a few years ago that I thought non-conforming equipment might become a lot more popular um, over here in uh, in Europe and the US, but it hasn't. I think that is a compelling argument for bifurcation. I'm sorry. I mean, the gap is so big. I mean. I thought you were quite pro bifurcation. Me? Yeah. No, I'm I am 100%. I've been against any rollback at any level okay. right from day one. I am not pro bifurcation. I've seen no a compelling reason to support it. And James pretty much led off with, 
I, I, I like a different style and I want a different style of the game. And, mm. and to me, that's not support for bifurcation. Specifically, yeah. um, the skill of uh, hitting the ball straight and hitting it a long way, more skill. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's How style. is that? But you're saying that doesn't exist now on the PGA Tour? Are you saying no, that there's no, players no, on the no, PGA Tour no, that are not no, able to hit not. it long and straight? No, no <laughs> right. absolutely not. I think, uh, <laughs> uh, so they're the longest would... and straightest players on the planet, right? So they'll always bubble to the top. Whether you give them a tennis racket or whether you give them a hickory-shafted club, the best players are going to bubble to the top. Why do you we think are... Rory and Tiger are in favor of, of, um, of regulating the, the equipment at the top of the game? Do you think that that's I'm, some I, sort of- I'm not sure. Like, uh, I have no idea. I mean, the, the, the one possible option is somebody like Rory. Um, he knows that it benefits him. Like, if if, if there is him? a role, uh, if when you get when you get um, if everybody got shorter, if the entire field gets shorter, it benefits the longer hitters more. Um, even in the distance, and I'll tell you why in a second. And it'll make sense in the distance insight report. Uh, the value of distance was highest in the 80s. That was when it was most important. And here's why. If you were to take everybody and just back them up 20 yards, um, the way that um, strokes gained average shots to hole out, essentially, if you were to say, uh, you know, after a tee shot on a par four, you're going to be at, at 160 and I'm going to be at 180. We're 20 yards apart. I'm a shorter hitter than you. The difference in score from 160 to 180 versus 140 to 160 is larger. So if you shift everybody back, the gap gets bigger. You and I are still 20 yards apart. Um, And when it's 160 to 180, there's a bigger difference in shots from 160 to 180 than there is from 140 to 160. Than there is from one. It starts to compress as you get closer to the hole. And so when you move people back, the longer hitters have a bigger advantage. And so maybe Rory knows that he's going to have an advantage. Maybe his team has told him that. Maybe he's just incredibly intelligent and he's playing 3D chess. But he will benefit from this. As a long hitter, the long hitters will benefit from this, hundred percent. James, do you want to say something to end this? Because we are now no, back no. where we started on tour. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's, it's obviously you no, know, that is that is true, um, and I think that. But I, but I also think, well, the only thing I would add to that is, uh, you know, hitting it a long way was less accessible to all players in the eighties. I don't. Why was it less accessible? I don't understand well, that. Because they were playing a, a small-headed club with a high-spinning ball. We are now. We are now exactly back where we started. So that's. I mean, that's, but that's Bobby Jones, like in part in, in the Distance Insight, they have some really fascinating. And, and I, people think that I hate the history of the game. I love the history of the game. I love all parts of the game. And they have some really cool info in the Distance Insight report about Bobby Jones, who was, and this is back in 1930 with a 1930s club. Um, he was swinging it at 113.5 miles per hour back then. So it was probably 43-inch long-ish. Yeah. Um, and it was probably really heavy compared to what it is right now. So if you could extrapolate that out to today with a 45-inch driver in his hand or 45-and-a-half lighter, um, he's probably swinging about 120, like low 120s. Mm. In the 1957 U.S. Amateur, they went out there with specialized equipment and they measured amateurs. Um, and the couple amateurs that they referred to were swinging it at 114.5. Again, 
old equipment, heavy, shorter, probably swinging at low 120s. So to say that they couldn't go at it back then um, is just completely, completely not true. Yeah, like Bobby not. Jones was ripping it at 120. Yeah, um, these guys in the USM were ripping it at 120. And maybe it's not you, but there's a lot of thought yeah. out there. And well, so I'm Greg sorry Norman, if I directed you know, at what, you. That was what was so good about Greg Norman, wasn't it? I mean, Greg Norman came out and just absolutely smashed for sim and drivers you know he had he could he could operate at that speed and just hit it out the middle every time and be consistent and brilliant um and you know he, he that was that was great to watch i really enjoyed that but right, i think boys. part of that was the Lou, was Lou, the, we're the, hold on stop. we've been here no, i have one, i have one more comment about that okay. so the style of play that you're going that you're going for and you're talking about back then People thought accuracy was the most important thing. And so they swung slower, like Faldo slowed his swing down. There's a fascinating article that Golf Digest had with top teachers. And this was in January of 1997. And they, Tiger had already won his first event. He's going into his first Masters. And these top teachers, including people like Ledbetter, were saying, how good is Tiger going to be? And you can see so many of them going through saying, well, he just hits the ball too far. He's not worried about accuracy. Back then, accuracy was a huge focus off the tee. And so players were more conservative, not only with how they swung it, but in the club choices that they made because they didn't fully understand. It didn't mean distance wasn't important. It was. We've shown through the data that distance was most important in the 80s, yeah. but players didn't realize it like we realize it now. Yeah. And if they did back then, they all would have been swinging like Seve, like Jack, like Norman. Yeah, yeah. They all would have been that, swinging that way. And that's true, but it's not, it's not just that. You know, It's a bit of both. But I think as as a fan of golf, you've got to get over here and play some golf and we'll, you know, you get that whole new dimension of getting it working on the ground and we'll take you everywhere to play some nice places. I would love to, uh, we'll have to do it over, uh, so you pints, we we'll have to do it over some pints. Pints, yeah. No, please don't. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll do it when he's in the United States. I'll, I'll time it up. So I'm over there with you. Perfect. Um, that was brilliant, boys. Like the, our sort of intention here was to try and give this debate the airtime it deserved, and try and hear from two uh, well-informed um, people on either side of the debate. And I think we've managed to do that in a sort of respectful and certainly very in-depth fashion. So, like, massive uh, thanks to both of you for giving up so much of your time. Thank you, thank you very much. And it's I think what we've demonstrated is that it isn't a binary topic. There's kind of lots of different ways of interpreting the same information. It is a sort of nuanced debate and regardless of the decision that's been made, it's one that will continue, I guess, to cause disagreement amongst our readers. So we'd like to hear from you if you've got anything else to add to this debate and thanks very much for listening. Thanks, James. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. And thanks, Steve. Sorry, I forgot about Steve. Sorry, Steve. Always the bridesmaid, Tom. Cheers. <laughs>